From CNN Audio, I'm Audie Cornish. This is The Assignment. In New Hampshire, some CNN polling is showing Nikki Haley has moved ahead of former President Trump's other contenders for the Republican nomination into second place. Haley's momentum hasn't gone unnoticed by the anti-Trump fundraisers looking for a horse to back. Kevin Madden, there's been also some consolidation of establishment fundraising behind her in the wake of Tim Scott dropping out, especially Spencer Zwick from your old camp. That's from Casey Hunt's show on CNN Max. It's called State of the Race. But the political news outlet Axios first reported that the so-called money maestro of Mitt Romney's presidential campaign was joining Team Haley. So we reached out to another Romney team alum, Kevin Madden. He was the campaign's spokesman, and he is now a CNN political contributor. Kevin, welcome to the assignment. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I'm from Massachusetts, so Mitt Romney was my governor. I've covered him at the State House, and then I actually covered his run. So I always would, you were a guy yeah. that yeah, couldn't, get, <laughs> couldn't get the attention of. But I want to talk about New Hampshire. Who is the Republican constituency in New Hampshire that any candidate is sort of in pursuit of? They're a very unique kind of Republican. Um, I think they're very independent-minded. They have an aversion towards high taxes, towards a government that wants to get very involved in things like whether or not they should have, uh, you know, a rifle uh, in the shed, uh, whether or not they um, can go a certain speed limit, that type of thing. There is just a very sort of independent-willed and libertarian streak that runs through your average Republican voter in New Hampshire. But they also, and I think this is why every single campaign has to run its way through New Hampshire, is they take their responsibility of voting very seriously. Yeah, but so does Iowa. They do, I know. But I think it's more of a tradition. And I think it's also in the DNA of what the average New Hampshire concerned citizen thinks is a really important part of their role of living in New Hampshire. I will say growing up in New England, the town hall was a real thing. I actually lived in a town that still had town hall governance where people ran for office to be town hall members. And there was like a couple hundred people who had this job. And I remember covering those campaigns in New Hampshire and you you were trekking from house to house in the snow. House to house in the snow, and the funniest part was how many times you would see some of the same people show up to different town halls that were in the area, and you're like, "Wow, we haven't even made a conversion yet here, right?" We've got the old say, the old joke about, uh, "Hey, are you going to vote for candidate X?" And it's like, "Well, I don't know. I've only met him four or five times yet, so I don't know, <laughs> right?" Um, and so that was a very real thing, and I think that's the thing that. Um, New Hampshire voters have, and I think Iowa voters too, right? They, they really do like to handle the merchandise before they make a purchase, and they really do like to force candidates into a level of transparency and a level of intimacy with your average primary voter that tests candidates for the ultimate test of the presidency. We're going to talk a little bit about this new CNN poll that was conducted by the University of New Hampshire. There's lots of things people have taken away from it. But number one is that Haley had sort of moved into the second position. So just to do the numbers, um, in New Hampshire, the majority of supporters said 42 percent would go for Donald Trump. And then Haley, 20 percent. 40% 
former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, 14 percent, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at 9 percent, which people are definitely seeing as a reversal of fortune. And then tech entrepreneur Vivek uh, Ramaswamy at 8%. So when I see these numbers, I know everyone talks about Haley, but the first thing I want to point out is that if you add up everyone but Trump, that means there's still a like large number of people who are willing to check out another option. Yes, it means there's a marketplace. Um, like business, it's divided. In a business world, we would say there is an addressable market here. Okay. Right? <laughs> and it is divided and it's somewhat fractured, but there are people who are still shopping around. Now, Trump is still the dominant force inside the party. Like as good as some of these trend lines look for some of these candidates that are still new, Trump still has a very firm grip on this electorate. So that's why you're here, because you probably in your time have had to sit down with a candidate and say, Time to call it. I've had way too many of those conversations where I've had to have, why am I, this young guy from Yonkers, New York, having a very hard conversation with somebody who's leading, running to be leader of the free world? Like, they should know this, right? Sometimes when you're running for president and you have your campaign based on, like, your aspirations and, like, your policy ideals and the big plans that you have for the country, you oftentimes forget some of the nuances of campaigns and also the behavioral science of winning over electorates. And so you have to have these hard conversations. with. So let's run through the scorecard a little bit. We see this movement in New Hampshire. And then I'm thinking of, you know, two major candidates who have dropped out, the former vice president, Mike Pence, and also uh, the senator from South Carolina, Tim Scott. Interestingly, both of these people, I think everyone thought would appeal to evangelical voters. Maybe you can decode some of that for me that they are gone. But I want to know... What are the elements that go into the decision of we should get out? Well, the number one thing, and this is an old saying in campaigns, is that candidates never run out of reasons to run. They run out of money. If you look at a a campaign like Mike Pence's, he's never really run out of the desire to run. He has really strong support. And to tell you the truth, he probably offered the best opportunity to sort of consolidate some of the evangelical vote in a place like Iowa, where it figures very prominently. But... That's you not do what not, happened. It's not what happened, and you do not want to go into debt. And you, he wasn't getting grassroots uh, enthusiasm from small donors. He wasn't getting big-dollar donations from, uh, you know, that infrastructure of big fundraisers and the, in the, uh, big bundlers inside the party. And he doesn't want to go into debt. The writing was on the wall. Okay. So given what you just said about money, what can we read into the people who are staying in? They've got momentum. We've, yeah. been, we've mentioned someone going over to Haley's campaign, right? Yeah. So staffing is sort of another yeah. signal of like, hey, do people believe in you or yeah, not? Yeah, I think the staffing primary is already over. I think you really do have to look at it as a marketplace, right? And but are mar- we looking at people who believe they're still well-funded? Are we looking at people they are who are well-funded. running on they're, fumes? Or they have enough funding. Okay. They have, they have Give me the scorecard. You have enough funding, right? <laughs> I think one of the things that you're seeing now with Haley, all the stories on the campaign are focused on Nikki Haley. Why? Because she has demonstrable momentum in one of the early primary states. At the same time, when you have people like Mike Pence and Tim Scott dropping out. So there's an opening there. With that momentum comes an opportunity to gather additional fundraising, additional grassroots support, and just the overall narrative that the field is winnowing and right at a time where she's ascending. So her value in that marketplace has gone up. So if you're we won't we don't even have to name names here, but if you're one of the other candidates, right, who's basically just splitting a vote right now, an alternative to Trump, what's the 
calculus? Like, what do you think you need to do? Here's the thing that I think every campaign has to do that, that the media has not really forced them to. Where do you win? Ask that hard question to a campaign. When I was on... That seems Rom- like an easy question. You would think so, but here's the thing. None of them have really provided a path where they're going to win 1,236 delegates. Or none of them have really said, I'm going to win in Iowa. I'm going to win New Hampshire. I'm going to play second in South Carolina. I'm going to slingshot into Florida. And by the way, here's the delegate hunt and what it looks like when we get into the early spring across Super Tuesday and all these big delegate-rich primary states. And for a reporter, I have to say, when you're on the campaign trail, that does get, like, leaked to you or told to you. Like, I, I don't would, know. You're right. I, you know you, what? No, you would see it in have stories. You, have you asked this question to any of these campaigns and said, take me through the path that you have to 1,236 in some detail? Have you? As a spokesman, have you ever yes. given some detail? Absolutely. <laughs> you go back. Of I was on Casey's show this morning. Okay. <laughs> you go back. And you ask Casey, you ask any uh, Maeve Reston, you ask uh, Dan Balls from back in the day, uh, anybody who covered that campaign. All of them made trips up to Boston. They sat with me for 45 minutes to an hour. I would walk through the map. I would walk through our resources where we had, and our resources were not just money. This was during the primary? This was during the primary. During 2008 and 2012, I would say, here's how we win the nomination. Here's how we advance to a general election. So you're saying the silence around this is definite. I think it's the question mark around it. You're right. So silence, question mark. The lack of a definitive answer for many of these campaigns is here's how we beat Trump and where we beat Trump. That's one of the big main question marks that Nikki Haley or anybody who emerges as the most viable alternative has to answer. When you look at some of these candidates like Ramaswamy, for instance, I think I understand conceptually there's a constituency there. But do we know what it is? I think there's a constituency of one in the sense that they are getting a really good feedback loop from their most active supporters. Stay in. We love you. You're the best. You're the only one that can win. You're the fighter. And you get that feedback loop as a candidate. Uh, You can tend to get insulated on a campaign because you're surrounded by a bunch of people who are essentially dedicating 18-hour days to you. And then when you go to town halls, it's not like they're – I think in many of these places, there are people who are showing up who are already sort of interested and curious and supporters. And then the other thing is you want to stay in as long as possible because – I think if you're Ron Swamy, which is like essentially from an entertainment or an infotainment wing of the party, and your goal here is to sort of build your profile in the party, the most important incentive you have is to stay in as long as possible. And, and beyond say that, yes to every beyond cable that, hit. Be, say yes to every single cable hit. Say yes to every single debate that's going to be beamed out to tens of millions of people potentially. And to continue on as far as you can with some political capital that demonstrates you're a player in the party and you're going to be able to be a player at the convention. So, like, that's the incentive right now. But this is also the time to ask the hard questions, Audie, right? Which is, where do you win? I'm talking with CNN political analyst Kevin Madden. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Jessie Gold saw some of the first signs of her depression back when she was in college. Ultimately, Jessie was able to get help, but says the experience of finding treatment simply wasn't easy. And that's what motivated her to become a psychiatrist. I want to be a safe space for people to get help where they don't feel like they did it wrong. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. It's The Assignment. I'm Audie Cornish. I'm talking with CNN's Kevin Madden about the state of the Republican presidential race. 
Given how far ahead the former president is, is it total fanfic to even talk about an alternative? This is kind of like that scene from Dumb and Dumber, right? Where it's like one out of a hundred. I'd say more like one out of a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah! I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I, I I think there is a path. I don't think any of them would get in. But would it be a shock or does it involve the former it, it president involves, stumbling? No, it, I think it involves both. I think, well, first, let me let me just clarify this. Hope is not a strategy. You cannot get into a presidential race thinking that you, one of your opponents is basically going to fall out of some gravitational pull or even just one facing 91 charges even then particularly when that person has a 100% name ID is the most uh, famous well figure known, in the world yeah. right with a very strong command and control level over their political base right there is a path but a lot of it depends on going out there and really making a case in a broad and sustained way not in a situational way or a glancing blow here and there but hold on. This yeah. poll out of New Hampshire, they were asked whether or not their vote is locked in. And back in just September, 36% of them said, I've decided. Now that number is 52%. It's trending in a direction. And among the right. Trump supporters, 8 in 10 say their choice is definite. Yeah. So it's not even like you're going to pull. And again, this is just New Hampshire. But do you think that's reflective of something? Yeah, I think the biggest mistake you can make on a campaign is thinking you have time. And if you look back to all of the campaigns when Trump was most vulnerable, when the indictments were first coming down, none of them went out and made a hard case that this would make him a toxic candidate in a general election in 2024. And they hoped somebody else would do it. And so here we are, fast forward a couple of months, and voters are, because you have it, because some of these candidates haven't gone out and made a really uh, strong, relentless case against them, they're starting to sort of solidify with Trump. Now, I still believe that polls are merely snapshots in time. Mm -hmm. They are, polls are not an event. This is, a, a, this is a poll skeptic safe space. Yeah. Just so you know, I am very, right. I just feel like I, I totally understand Public why opinion people is believe not an polling. event. It's a process. I say it this is. all the and time. And there are always right. so many wild things right. that come out of nowhere. I mean, right. we used to talk about the October surprise, mm -hmm. which is some unforeseen event that would happen that might disrupt the whole narrative around a campaign. There is a chance, but... They're running quickly at a time. And I think the most important thing that would happen right now for anybody who hopes to consolidate this mm -hmm. field is that it happens very quickly. So what are the campaign staffers doing? Give me three things that any smart strategist, whatever, would be like well, can cuddling I do this around through the lens? Can I do this through the lens of uh, Nikki Haley's campaigns? Because I think she's probably the one with the most momentum right now. Well, you're now. not working for her I'm or anything, not working are you? For okay, her, right? go for but, it. But like, if I were working on her campaign... I would make every single donor or every single bundler or prominent fundraiser that was coming our way like a national media event. It would be one after the other. I'd say, this person just joined our campaign. The next day, this person just joined our campaign. We're, the momentum continues. I would be absolutely out there. I'd be on the phone, and everybody here at CNN who ever worked on a campaign knew I could work the phones. I would call. They would, oh, my God, another phone call from Madden. And I would call, and I'd be like, hey. Have you seen this about DeSantis or DeSantis has gone down in this poll and DeSantis is, is in trouble here? And by the way, we're getting some of their new supporters and we're getting some of their endorsements in this state, that state, that state to come our way and just create this entrenched narrative that 
all the momentum was moving toward Nikki Haley and it was moving away from Ron DeSantis. And I wouldn't do it in a way that was attacking Ron DeSantis. Instead, it would be, this is the state of the race right now. Creating buzz around your own. This is the state of the race right now. And it's time to consolidate. If we want to have a candidate that's going to lead this party into the future and where, you know, a Ron DeSantis can be a part of that potential administration or whatever. Yeah, but that's interesting yeah. that you're saying you'd be making the consolidation argument too. I would be that making... You'd be leaning into the like, hey, maybe it's time those others got I out. would be selling the consolidation Everyone, momentum. Everyone, he has just balled his fist in the studio talking about <laughs> that. Or he assumed a Superman. I, I, would, I would. I would be developing that consolidation narrative as best I could across every single platform as with as many audiences as possible so that Everybody started to feel like, you know, it's like, hey, we gave it a really good run with Ron DeSantis, but like right now is the time to make the right decision and join this campaign and consolidate it so that we have an alternative to Trump in a general election. Speaking of which, when you pull ahead, that's when you become a target for everyone else's criticisms, of course. I think you have to see that as a sign of strength, which is they're attacking me and a lot of these folks are framing and trying to frame me in a negative way because they view me as a threat. But here's what I believe and why, and why I think it's the right approach for the Republican Party, and it's the right approach to have for a nominee as we go into a general election against Joe Biden, and why I'm the best candidate to beat Joe Biden. But number one, we know a lot of Trump voters actually don't buy the electability argument in terms of thinking it's a problem for Trump, right? They're still very steadfast. But number two, you know, the thing about Nikki Haley is like, she is trying to appeal to a general audience. I mean, even the way she talks about abortion, et cetera, it seems like she she is looking beyond the primary. Uh, well, I think there's you have to segment out the, the Trump voter, which is the, the unpersuadable Trump voter. Do or die with Trump all the way, right? You're never going to persuade them. There's no point in messaging to them. But there are a lot of Trump nose holders out there, people who voted for him twice, who didn't necessarily want to, but they made sure that they didn't want either Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden as president, right? Got it. Those voters are who the ones that you're messaging to. There is a number of core elements that I think are driving the average Republican base voter. But a couple of those elements are this. They want a fighter. They want somebody who is really strong, really authoritative about driving a hard contrast between the Republican Party and the perceived excesses of the left, and they want somebody who is going to win. So when you make your case centered on those two elements to those voters that may have voted for Trump and are right now registering support for Trump, saying that they're going to vote for him in a primary, but there's still some level of hesitation there, they're gettable. That's who Nikki Haley is sort of focused on right now. I guess what I'm trying to figure out is how seriously do you think Republicans should take the populist arguments of their party and the populist elements? Oh, well, if you're asking me as a Republican, am I worried about the populist I'm asking you as an ex-Romney person, (laughs) right? Like people people look at Romney or the Bushes as neocons, as neoliberals. Yeah. I mean, I always – I preferred the term smart power um, versus, you know, all these silly neocons, neoliberal tags. So, I mean, I think it's problematic. I think our place in the world when it comes to supporting our allies in Ukraine, supporting our allies in the Middle East – do you uh, building feel like up this strong is mind- institutions like NATO, like that's a key, key issue for me. But I also think that if you took the number of Republicans who NATO alliance is like a top three issue, where probably could fit us all in a phone booth. And I believe that's a problem with the Republican Party. You and I have talked about this before. The party that I prospered in and where I worked on national campaigns had a very, very uh, sharp focus on both message and policy that says, here's what we're for and why. The party now 
And if you look at the Steve Bannons and those who are uh, driving the sort of populist sentiment of the Republican base right now, it's about what they're against and why and who's to blame for it. It's a very popular sentiment. It's driving a lot of outrage. It's a lot um, easier to explain. It is. That was one of the things I learned when I was in Congress. It's so much easier for a member of Congress to go home and explain a no vote than it is to explain a yes vote. And that was why I felt like, you know, the best part of my job when I worked as a Republican communicator was coming up with ways to explain what we were doing and why, because it was a challenge. But it was an important part of driving an ideas-driven Republican Party. And now we have a, a Republican Party that I just have to admit is very much driven by a lot of, a, of emotion. We talked a lot about Nikki Haley, but the person who was number two is Ron DeSantis. Is this campaign really dying? Here's the most troubling thing if you're inside the DeSantis campaign. You've gone from national polls, 26, 29 percent. And in some of these state polls, a similar sort of share of the, of the, of the vote. And you spent millions and millions and millions of dollars and you spent hours and hours and hours traveling across all these primary states and you've gone down. The troubling thing is you're putting more resources in to get less support. That trend line at this stage in the game, very, very hard to reverse. Because it's also back to the money. It's a marketplace. What people are finding out is that the more they find out about you, the less they want, the less they want of it. And so it's just it's a really hard thing for the campaign to come to terms with right now. Is that something that Nikki Haley should be wary of? Nikki Haley already is wary of it, and that's why she is actually going out there and probably messaging right to these donors, right to these big supporters and endorsers, and trying to say, like, the momentum's with me, the marketplace is speaking, join my team. So the thing we haven't talked about, really, is the former president, partly because he gets talked about everywhere. But I did want to get your perspective because – you know, right now he's sitting in courtrooms. Like, yes, he's doing yeah. campaign events, but he's not campaigning with the visibility that maybe we all remember. It feels like it's he's quieter it's, in a way. Yeah, it's very different from 2020. It's very different from 2016. So I'm not making that up. No. If you really look back at what Trump did well in 2016 was he really did become a vehicle for a lot of people's frustrations with the canyon that had emerged between the way Washington, D.C. would talk about and try to legislate or solve problems and the real concerns that voters had around the country. Yeah. And they just felt like there's just this gap. And he'd come in and say, you're not crazy. This he, thing is you, bad. You're not, you're not crazy. These people don't care about you. Yeah. you don't, and by the way, they'll talk about it and talk about it and talk about it, but they're never going to solve it. Not like I will, right? And so he did become this vessel for a lot of frustrations around the country. And he was running against a Washington insider in 2016, like the personification of Washington insider. And so a race that became essentially a, a race to the bottom, Clinton hit bottom first in that campaign. And that was how we won. I mean, the, the, the amazing stat that I still can't get out of my head from 2016 was how many folks went to the polls with a belief that Trump was not fit for office but voted for him anyway. Right. 
That was a stunning, stunning. And that's meaningful. Statistic. I mean, some of the meaningful. polls at CNN have indicated that people like don't think he's honest. Right. <laughs> or uh, there was one question was, would you be proud to say he was your president? Right. And like majorities said no, but that didn't necessarily mean they wouldn't consider right. it. And you and I have talked about this before, where I, like my firm belief is that every election comes down to whether or not a candidate can answer this question affirmatively. Does this person understand the problems of people like me? And in that race in 2016, he just happened to be a little bit better than Hillary Clinton. And that's that. still a deeply pertinent question right now. It, it is. Every single election still comes down to that. Yeah. I really do believe it. If you're, if we were to boil even down what we do. good economy, right? Or meaning, <laughs> by good, I'm saying even when your unemployment is low, et cetera, if people don't feel it, if the answer to that question right. reflects people's disappointment. Right. That's a problem. And what's that old saying about like swimming with sharks? It's like you don't have to outswim the shark. You just got to outswim the other guy you're swimming with. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, like everybody says, well, what's Trump's plan on the economy? And it's like he's not the incumbent right now. And the incumbent is the one that's going to potentially get blamed. And then the other thing we have to remember, this election is going to be really, 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 really close. No matter what happens between now and November, it's going to be really, really close. Yeah. We're talking about anywhere between 120,000 to 300,000 votes in four states. That's the whole ballgame. So Trump just has to be a better alternative than the incumbent in that race. Kevin Madden is a CNN political analyst. He served as a senior strategist and spokesman on three presidential campaigns, including Mitt Romney's 2012 bid. That's all for today. The Assignment is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Dan Bloom. Our senior producer is Matt Martinez. Our technical director is Dan DeZula. And Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. Support comes from Haley Thomas, Alex Manasseri, Robert Mathers, John Dianora, Lenny Steinhard, Jameis Andres, Nicole Pesaru, and Lisa Namaro. Of course, special thanks to Katie Hinman. And if you want us to cover a political assignment, give us a call, 202-854-8802. Again, the number is 202-854-8802. We'll be back with a new episode on Thursday. Thank you for listening. I'm Audie Cornish.